Remember, we have the conference on Israel this weekend and starting Thursday night, and that will run uh, 7.30 to 8.30 Thursday night, 7.30 to 8.30 Friday night, just as normal schedule, our time schedule. And then Saturday morning, there will be three sessions, one at 9, one at 10, one at 11, that will run approximately 50 minutes with a 10-minute break in between. Hopefully we can keep to that schedule or something close to it. Uh, we have at least 55 or 56 people who've registered online. Now, most of you haven't, because, and that's, that's okay, but we have about 55 or 56, most of whom's names I don't recognize, right? Do you recognize? No, I don't know who they are. So that's going to be good. We're going to have a good crowd, so that's going to be very good um, each night. So be in prayer for that, that everything will go well there. And then, um, what else? We still need some volunteers for Sunday, Saturday morning and Sunday night. And check with Pam Richards to see what she needs and who and when, because it's uh, not maybe not that much Thursday and Friday, but Saturday morning definitely and Sunday night definitely. So... Uh, that's that's the main part of, of the announcements. Oh, hey, Bryce, would you do me a favor? I printed something that's on the back on the printer. Would you please go get that for me? So this will be a uh, good conference. I'm really uh, really looking forward to that. And all the different all the different speakers. It's amazing how many things are going on since I announced this conference. Not a week, hardly a day goes by that I don't see another news article in one of the numerous things that I get related to BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. In fact, it's been interesting in Germany, uh, the, um, the universities have determined that it's anti-Semitic, which is a good thing. And then this morning, I briefly saw an article that a, a one of the unions in Germany recognized that the BDS movement was inherently anti-Semitic. And so we can be thankful for those things. But of course, here in the United States, the universities are not uh, paying attention to that or waking up to that. Thank you. Uh, So we have problems here as usual. All right. After a few moments of silent prayer, let's, uh, where we can get prepared for our study this evening. Uh, Let's bow our heads together, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your, your word. We're thankful for the truth that you communicate to us. We're thankful for our understanding that we are in Christ, and in Christ we have innumerable blessings. And part of the blessings that we have is access to you through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who has torn down the barrier. And Father, we specifically pray this evening for the Dillon family, for uh, Perry and for his wife, Sierra, and for uh, his parents, Chesley and Michelle and the grandparents. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, heal them, give the doctors wisdom, and that uh, as serious as these injuries sound, that they'll be able to recover from them. Uh, Father, we also continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our leadership. We, As First Timothy 2 says, we're to pray that we might have leaders who leave us alone and allow us to 
uh, have peace and tranquility and to carry out the ministry that you have given us. And Father, we pray for this conference this week, that this will be an important conference, informative, and that it will just lay another uh, another layer of uh, understanding in our souls, but also outreach to those who need to know the truth. And Father, we pray that tonight, as we study your word, that we might be uh, have a better understanding of what the scripture says in light of what we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing I came across my uh, email today that I wanted to uh, say to you, uh, read to you, because I was completely unaware of this, and it is just another tremendous sign of the great apostasy that is going on in the mainline denominations. I get a regular email from a guy named Ed Decker, and his organization is called Saints Alive, and for probably 30 or 40 years, he has been a missionary to the Mormon community in Utah. And that's normally the focus of his of his emails. But in this particular email today, he's talking about apostate Christianity, and this is what he says. It is not often you see a mainline Christian denomination go so off the centrality of our faith that they actually mock God and break several of the basic tenets of our faith. I figure that they broke the first four right at the start. I'm not sure what those are. He doesn't enumerate, but he says, um, there it is on the printed on the back side. He said, the Presbyterian Church USA, that's the United Presbyterian Church. They used to be Northern and Southern. They merged in the late 80s. And uh, that's the mainline denomination now. They're also a denomination that voted in favor of BDS. Okay, so they're anti-Zionist, anti-Israel. They're truly apostate. He said the Presbyterian Church USA fell into apostasy after lifting up prayers to Allah at its general assembly meeting in August. And here's the prayer. Allah, bless us and bless our families and bless our Lord. Lead us on the straight path, the path of all prophets, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, they didn't mention Jacob, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. These were the words, Decker writes, that rang out over the congregation at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA meeting in Portland, Oregon. Wajidi Sayyid, co-founder of the Muslim Education Trust, led the attendees in the prayer to the Islamic deity, a move arranged by the ecumenical and interfaith ministry staff at the assembly. The prayer was part of the first order of business during the meeting's opening session, a time dedicated to praying for those affected by the Orlando shooting that had occurred just weeks before. And then he goes on to say that Saeed prayed in the name of Allah, the beneficent, a beneficent, the merciful. Let us praise the Lord. Peace be upon them and peace be upon Allah. He also prayed peace on the bigots and Islamophobes. So anyway, just a little insight into how our uh, culture is just absolutely fragmenting as we've stepped away from the truth. We can't understand uh, truth, and we have no discernment. Not too di- and, and that's just a great example of wor- worldliness and demon influence through false religions and false philosophy. So we started this study last time, a summary of what the Bible teaches about demonism, and we started this because 
Our passage in 1 Samuel 16, 14 talks about this, when the Spirit of the Lord left Saul, that a distressing spirit, as it's translated in the New King James Version, but actually in the Hebrew, it's the word on the lower left, ra, which means bad or evil. And this is talking about a demon that troubles uh, Saul. And the idea there is this word ba'at on the lower right. It's an external action. Um, he is uh, troubling Saul from the outside. So the result is that Saul is experiencing d- extreme distress and fear that incapacitates him. So he started a review of the angelic rebellion the rebellion against the authority of God that began in eternity past when the chief angel identified in English versions and in popular culture as Lucifer. That name comes from the King James translation, but the Hebrew is Hillel ben Shachar, and that is the, the bright and morning star, the uh, shining one, the sun of the morning, the sun of the dawn. And this is his fall is described in Isaiah fourteen twelve through fourteen and Ezekiel twenty eight twelve to nineteen. I didn't point this out last time, but one of the things you should know that the trend of modern evangelical scholarship is to deny that Isaiah fourteen that's it's more common there that that does not refer to the fall of Satan. It's simply referring to the fall of a historical personage, the king of Babylon, and then uh, but. A number of people who will deny Satan in Isaiah 14 will still affirm it in Ezekiel 28, but there there are many who deny it in both places. One of the consequences of that is that evil is no longer, the the origin of evil in the universe, in the cosmos, is no longer addressed in Scripture. So this lends itself to a kind of dualism where you have an eternal uh, good and an eternal evil. And it's bad theology, but worse, it's bad exegesis. And it comes from the kinds of pressure that is put on evangelical scholars and uh, to go along with where their more liberal, uh, respectable, uh, scholarly brethren are. And this is one of the things that has uh, infected uh, evangelical seminaries over the past uh, 50 or 75 years because they want to have the respect like everybody else, the same problem that Israel had. We want to have a king like everybody else. So that one of the ways in which this happened is that when they... Uh, elevated new professors and identified those who uh, would serve in the future, they would encourage them not only to get, for example, at Dallas Seminary to get a doctorate from Dallas, but then to go on to Harvard or Edinburgh or Yale or Princeton or Aberdeen or Basel or one of the European schools, and they always brought back some kind of a Trojan horse. And it influenced where those seminaries went. It wasn't just Dallas. I'm not picking on Dallas, but it affected uh, Trinity. It, it's affected Western Conservative. It's affected Denver Seminary, Gordon Conwell, every one of these. And they have drifted off course. And if you're interested, uh, you can Google an article by uh, that was recently published in American Thinker. And the title of it is The Death of Evangelicalism. And if you haven't seen that, I've emailed it out. I've also posted it on my Facebook page and on the DBM Facebook page. 
uh, you can get that. It is a, a an accurate and telling description of how, as the author puts it, evangelicalism has been committing suicide for the last 40 years, and it just about accomplished the task. So this is the angelic rebellion began with the fall of Halel bin Shahar. If those passages aren't talking about that, then you have no idea. We would have no idea that evil had a beginning, or that it, or when it began. Second thing we said that in Revelation twelve three and four we learned that a third of the angels fell with Satan. So we identify them as fallen angels. That's point number three. They're collectively referred to as fallen angels, although some people may generally call all fallen angels demons. Technically, the term demon or evil spirit should probably be reserved only for that group of fallen angels who interact today with the human race or who can interact today with the human race. And they are all organized under Satan. The fourth point was that there are several different groups of fallen angels, different categories of fallen angels. There's, first of all, we looked at the sons of God. This is a term for, that describes all angels, fallen and elect, and it specifically refers to a group of angels that um, cohabited with human beings. It's described in Genesis 6-4, Jude uh, verses 6 and 7, as well as Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. The New Testament passages make it very clear that it's talking about angels, but when you look at the term sons of God, Beneha Elohim, it clearly describes and refers to, um, to angels in Job 1 and in Job 2. Uh, fourth, we see that um, uh, are the se- second in this listing of different groups of angels that there's a demon army currently confined to the abyss. This they're described in Revelation nine one through eleven, and they will be released during the tribulation period as part of the fifth trumpet of judgment in the latter part of the first half of the tribulation. That judgment is followed by a second demon army. So this is the third group of demons that is an army of 200 million that are currently held in reserve under the Euphrates River, according to Revelation 9, 14 through 16. Then the fourth group of demons are those who are alive and well and were involved in these different episodes of demonic influence and demonic possession that are described in the scripture. The fifth point we looked at, fifth and sixth points are definitions. Very important. I want to review those again. Demon influence or demonic oppression can happen to anybody. It is an external, externally based uh, operation. By that I mean the demon is not inside of a person. He's outside the person. And demon influence is when a person's thinking uh, when a person is thinking according to the devil's thinking. Now, the devil's thinking was arrogance. I want to be like God, and I want to be worshipped like God. But it also involved antagonism or hostility to the Word of God. And so when we look at any world religion other than biblical Christianity, it manifests both of those characteristics. Uh, moral, moral-based moral religions manifest those characteristics. They're grounded on arrogance, and they're grounded on an a- antagonism to grace in the teaching of the Word of God. So that fits all philosophies, 
and all world religions other than biblical Christianity. So any um, any value, philosophy, religion, opinion, and worldview contrary to the divine viewpoint derived from the exegesis of Scripture is demon influence. Sixth point, distinguishing demon influence from demon possession is that demon possession describes the invasion of the body of a non-Christian by a demon. We'll spend a lot of time on that this evening. Uh, a, A demon is able to enter into the body of a person, a non-Christian only, and can control the unbeliever's physical actions from a position within the unbeliever. So that's not what's going on with Saul. The prepositions are all external. They're not into or inside of. Now, that's pretty much what I covered last time. I think I may have stopped at at point seven. Point seven, we see that the New Testament warns about demon influence in a number of different ways. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says that sacrificing to idols, even though the idol may be wood, stone, metal, and may not mean anything, it represents a meaningless, meaningless false religion, nevertheless what Paul is saying is if they sacrifice to idols, they're sacrificing to a demon. What he means by that is that demons are behind these false religions and these false gods and goddesses. So when you read about Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, Babylonian mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology, those gods and goddesses are uh, representatives of various demons. And there's a view that I think holds a lot of uh, water, and that is that after Noah and the family got off the ark and they began to multiply and spread over the earth, those that were negative to God, hostile to God, rejected God, are the ones that remembered back through the stories they were told of the sons of God who uh, cohabited with the daughters of men. That sounds like Zeus looking down from heaven and seeing a a human uh, female that he came down and would rape, and then the byproduct of that would be uh, Hercules or some other great men. And that's what Genesis 6 talks about. And this was the source of the men of renown uh, of the ancient ancient times. And so uh, Paul says that worshiping these false demons, so if you believe in these mental, um, mind-based uh, cults, these there are a lot of self-help uh, philosophies that are promoted on PBS. They're promoted in a variety of churches. In fact, there are some churches even here in Houston that get a lot of play on the radio and on TV, but they're basically um, motivational. It's just human viewpoint. It is demonic influence. First um, Timothy four one describes these as deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons that in the latter times, which is the whole church age, people will fall away from the truth and they will be led astray by these deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen through fifteen warns of their deceptive appearance as servants of righteousness, and so this is the devil's tactic is his role is to appear to be good, to appear to be an angel of light. And you have examples of this in two great world religions. By great, I don't mean that they are they are important or good, but that they are large and influential. You have 
uh, and they're very similar. You have Islam. What happens in the origin of Islam? You have the story of Muhammad going up to a cave, and you have an angel who appears to him and identifies himself as, uh, as, uh, as Gabriel and gives him the Quran and dictates it to him, and, and he learns it. And he doesn't write it down for, for many years. He writes it down from uh, supposed memory. That's, uh, that's demonic influence. That's the deceptiveness of an angel of light. They have almost the same thing happened with Joseph Smith up in Palmyra, New York, that he goes up on uh, the mountain, the hill, Comora, outside of town, and you have the angel Moroni, who appears to him and gives him these tablets and special uh, juju black magic uh, glasses that he can put on and decode uh, what has been written down. And so that's the origin of the Book of Mormon. So Mormonism and Islam both have very similar beginnings, and they're both based on an angel of light that appears and deceives uh, the founders of those religions. And then we have James three thirteen through 15 that identifies the thinking of the world as earthly, natural, and demonic. In the world natural, there's the word soulish, which is used in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, uh, 12 through 14 to describe unbelievers. They are not spiritually alive. They don't have a spirit. They're described as soulish. So that is uh, key. Now, when we get into the New Testament, One of the important things that you have to do if you're going to understand a biblical view of what the Bible teaches about angels and demons is you have to deal with the fact that, that as I pointed out last time, you only have uh, one strong example of of the activity of demons. Well, two if you count Job, uh, Job 1 with Satan. Uh, but you only have those two examples in the Old Testament. There's not a well-developed angelology or demonology in the Old Testament. So the first thing you really see of this outbreak of demonism and demon possession is at the time of Christ. And I believe there's a reason for that, that the Messiah is on the earth. You really uh, have a more of a demon influence type of scenario in terms of influence through world religions in the Old Testament. You don't have the uh, kind of demonic possession like we see in, um, in the Gospels. So we have to analyze the Gospels. And to do that initially, for some people, it may appear like there aren't a lot of examples of demon possession. Once you boil it down, there's only, um, there's only eight specific examples. But there's three broad general examples, which tells us that there were really many more people who were demon-possessed than the ones that are specifically described in those other passages. In Matthew 4.24, we're told that uh, they brought to him all who were ill, that were taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So he clearly makes a distinction between those who were demoniacs or demon-possessed and those who were ill or were sick or were paralyzed. And this is described, this this, uh, general statement is, has a parallel in Mark 3.11 and in Luke 6.17-19. Then in Matthew 8.16, we're told that when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Notice, 
just a word. There's no incantation. There's no formula. He doesn't, um, he doesn't uh, go into a lot of ritual. There's not incense candles. He's not holding up a cross or a Star of David or something else to scare the demon away. He just says, go, get out, and that's it. So it's very different than what you find in the human viewpoint uh, approaches to exorcism. So he casts out the demons with the word, and he healed all who were ill. Again, they're parallels in Mark one twenty nine to thirty four, and Luke four thirty eight to forty one. Then the third general statement is found in Luke seven twenty one. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. That's a synonym for a demon. And he granted sight to many who were blind. So it clearly makes a distinction between diseases and demon possession, even though in some of these cases, the symptoms of demon possession or that that the demon can produce imitate a disease. But it clearly makes a distinction between an organic disease that is the result of uh, some sort of infection or other a virus or something like that, and that which is caused by a demon who is taking up a dwelling inside the person. Now, under this next point, there are eight specific incidents that are also described in Scripture. And if we were going to take our time, I would go through each of these incidents to build out the characteristics. That's what you do in developing a solid theology. You look at, it's inductive. You look at each and every incident, and you look at the characteristics that are there. And what we discover is there are no patterns, except for the fact that there are certain words that are always used. Uh, as we'll see, ace erkamai, a demon going into somebody and are coming out, which would be ex. Ace means into. It's a preposition that is uh, a prefix on the word erkamai, which means to come. So if erkamai means to come, ace erkamai means to go into. Ex means to come, means out from, and so ex erkamai means to come out from. Ekbalo. Balo means to cast or to throw. Ekbalo means to uh, cast out, out from. So those terms are your critical terms for defining what uh, demon possession is. So we have a man in the synagogue that Jesus confronts in Mark 1, 23 to 28, and he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is another important thing to uh, uh, identify is how, what term is used. I've got another slide on that coming up. But an unclean spirit is a synonym, and it's used, for example, when we compare some uh, one account in Mark, for example, with a similar account in Matthew or Luke, one writer may use the term uh, demon. The other writer uses the term evil spirit. Or in a long, long or lengthy account, it may describe the demon as evil spirit in one verse, and then the person as being demon, demonized or demonizomai. Uh, in a later verse. So that tells us that an evil spirit is just a synonym for the word uh, word demon. That's in Mark 1, 23 to 28, and the parallel is in Luke 4, 33 to 37. 
a second example, and we'll look at this in more detail uh, in a few minutes. This is the Gadarene demoniac. Uh, it's identified as Gadara in one passage and uh, Gerasi in another passage. And so, uh, but they're talking about the same region or town in the Gentile side in the south uh, east corner of the of the uh, Sea of Galilee. This is described in Matthew eight twenty eight to thirty four, as well as Mark five one through twenty, and Luke eight twenty six uh, to forty. So you can see that the longest account is the Mark account. That's the one we'll look at in a minute. You have the example of the Canaanite woman's daughter. So this is a Gentile woman who comes to Jesus, and her daughter has been uh, is being uh, possessed by a demon. That's described in Matthew fifteen twenty one to twenty eight, as well as Mark seven twenty four to thirty. Then there's a young boy whose father comes to Jesus, says this demon comes on him, and, and he uses a term that it would appear to him that he's epileptic, uh, but it's more than that. He is, he's got a demon, and Jesus casts out the demon, and this boy would, would just go into convulsions and be thrown on the ground, and if there was a fire there, he'd land in the fire, do harm to himself. And so his father comes to Jesus, pleading that Jesus would cast out the demon, which he does. This is described in Matthew seventeen, fourteen to 21. The fifth example is uh, this mute boy who has seizures in Mark nine fourteen to twenty nine, with the parallel in Luke nine thirty seven to forty three. Again, Jesus casts the demon out. Uh, there's a blind and mute man. So what we can see is that there are different symptoms that a demon can produce that imitate a disease. He, one's blind, one's mute, one has seizures, uh, one appears to be epileptic, but is not. Uh, the seventh example is a woman who is bound by Satan for 18 years, described in Luke 13:10 through 21, and then a mute demon-possessed man in Matthew 9:32 to 34. Now, one of the funny things we'll look at a little later on has to do with how people in later generations, in the medieval period, the Puritan period, and even the modern period, will come up with various symptoms. How can you identify somebody who's demon-possessed? Now, remember, we have these biblical examples, and we don't see, we, we'll look at these things later, but we don't see the kind of things that we see here, um, where the Gadarene demoniac is naked, he's, he's uh, doing bodily harm to himself, he can tear apart chains, things of that nature. Uh, the boy who falls into the fire, he's like epileptic fits and seizures, blindness, mute. Um, these are the biblical examples that we find. Now, that's all part of the ninth point, which is these eight specific examples described in Scripture. The tenth point is that fallen humanity is ground zero for the angelic rebellion. We are ground zero. Genesis 3.15, once Satan enticed Eve and then Eve enticed Adam, Adam is the head of the race, ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you have man falling prey to Satan, losing his dominion over the earth, and Satan becomes the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air. Genesis 3.15 predicts the battle that will take place the anger, the hostility between 
you, the, God is addressing the serpent and the seed of the serpent, who is Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, that is the seed of the serpent, and her seed. And her seed ultimately refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seed is not, in, in, the, in the Greek of the Septuagint, it's the word sperma. Well, that obviously is the seed that's produced by the male. Uh, a woman produces the egg. So this is an unexpected term to describe the seed of the woman. This is something the male produces, and it it doesn't say specifically the virgin birth, but it fits that idea because it is the woman who's going to produce that which is normally produced by the male. So it fits the doctrine of the virgin birth. So that's ground zero. We're involved in this spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Now, let's have a case study, and I've misnumbered this particular slide. I added one, so this should be uh, 11. It's a case study of demon possession. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, or excuse me, to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and it's described in verses 1 through 20, and the parallel is in Luke eight twenty-seven to 37. So let's turn there in our Bibles, and we'll just start off with the very beginning, the opening description of the scenario. Then they, and this is referring to Jesus and his disciples, after they have been uh, out on the Sea of Galilee, then they cross over to the other side. They've been up in the north near Capernaum and Bethsaida, and uh, Jesus has been teaching the disciples, and now he go, says, let's go to the, cross over to the other side in Mark 4, uh, 35. This is described then in verse 1. He says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. They're in Gentile territory now. That's important because when you have this, you're going to have a herd of, of pigs. So that, would, that was legitimate for them to be uh, raising pigs on that side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. They came to the country of the Gadarenes, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him. If you read Mark, I know a lot of you are reading your Bibles. I'm very gratified to hear from different people as they're reading through the Bible. Uh, somebody asked a question last week and said, as I'm reading through it for a second or third time, or I'm trying to read it through faster, sometimes I, I, I get a little sleepy. And we all do that. You read it, and you just sort of go into neutral. One of the things you should do is try to look for specific things to underline or highlight as you're going through a book. So make a note of this. When you're reading Mark, underline the word immediately. Mark loves that word. He is... He must be very young, and everything has to happen quickly, and everything Jesus does is immediately. That's his style. So he says, um, when he came, got out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man, and I've highlighted this on the screen, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, what does that mean to be with an unclean spirit? I can go somewhere with my wife, and that doesn't mean she is inside of me. 
Okay, so we have to look at examples to understand what this means with an unclean spirit. Is this, you know, are they hand in hand, arm in arm, uh, the demon out, the evil spirit outside of his body or inside of his body? He said he has this unclean spirit, and the word here is the Greek is in pneumati akatharto. Now we know the word pneumati is pneuma, that's the Greek for spirit. Akatharto is unclean, so it has in can mean with or by or uh, it can even mean uh, possibly within, but that has to be determined by context. We see in um, comparison in this slide, I've got uh, references from Mark 5 2, verses 8 and 13 verses 15 to 16 and 18, and then in the parallel, eight, Luke 8, 27. By comparing them, we can see that there are four different phrases that are used to describe this, and so that helps us to understand that each of these phrases means the same thing. So in the first example, he's with an unclean spirit, in the second example, it's a little different construction in the Greek, but it means the same thing. It's, uh, uh, it means an unclean spirit. It's just two different ways you can express the adjective in a Greek structure. The third use is the verb daimonizomai. Now, this word and its mistranslation has led to a lot of people to shift their theology. There was a man for a Dallas Seminary graduate, THM, THD, taught at Moody Bible Institute for many years by the name of Fred Dickinson. Early in his career, he wrote a book called Angels, Elect, and Holy, one of our textbooks when I went through Dallas. He hints towards the end of that book of his future position, and his future position was that Christians could be demon-possessed. His basic argument was that I have a file cabinet filled with examples that's called empiricism. That's not coming from the Bible examples, but personal examples. I've got files of hundreds of Christians who've been demon-possessed. But when he tried to argue from it from the text, he went to this word, diamondizomai. Now, if you break it down, it's a participle, and it's a passive participle. Now, a passive verb has the idea that you receive the action. You're passive to the action. You're receiving the action. So you're receiving the action of a demon. Now, what he did with that is he said, and he's accurate to, 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 to a point, that all this word gets you is that this person is being acted upon by a demon. But he went a step too far. He said, but that doesn't mean demon possession. He said that just means being acted upon by a demon. That could be demon influence, or it could be demon possession. It's a word that could mean either one. And for that, he would get an F in Greek. Because what this is a general word. He was right about that. It's a general word. But what defines it are the specific words that surround it. And the specific words that surround it are those words I mentioned already, going into and coming out of. Ace Erkomai and Exer, those are the technical terms that give precision 
to this general word. This word means to be acted upon by a demon, but in what way? Um, and then in verse uh, in Luke eight twenty seven, the same person is described as someone who had unclean spirits. So um, we can define this from other contexts and and other words used in this context. For example, when it talks about an unclean spirit in Mark five eight and thirteen, look at this verse. Jesus said to him, that is the, 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 the demon, he says, come out of the man, unclean spirit. So that unclean spirit and this whole activity, the way the unclean spirit is with the man, is described as diamondizomai, but the specificity is that this demon has to be inside of the person to come out of him. So that's what tells us what it means when he says he's with a demon. The demon is in him because it has to be to come out. So Jesus says, Ekbalo, come out of the man unclean spirit. Then he has a conversation with him, ask him his name, and the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Roman Legion would have upward of a couple of thousand soldiers, and so this indicates that numerous thousands of demons could be inside of one person because they're immaterial, so they're not restricted by space. Now, what has happened in the occult and in... Uh, exorcistic mythology is the idea that if you're going to control the demon, you have to know his name. And that's how you can control him. So the first thing you should do if you're casting out a demon is to say, what's your name? And then you can control him. And that's just hogwash. That is not biblical. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching something here about how many demons can potentially uh, indwell an individual. And then this demon begs Jesus not to send him out of the country. We'll look at what that meant late, later on. He basically says, "Don't send me to Tartarus. Don't send me uh, to, to to the excuse me to the abyss. Don't send me to the abyss." He wants to inhabit something. And so we learn in verse eleven, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons, notice that all the demons are begging Jesus. This must have been quite a scene. All these demons are chattering together and begging Jesus, send us into the swine. Notice that you have Jesus saying, come out, and they want to go into the swine. This isn't just some passive sort of external action. It is very specific. Diamondizomai means to have a demon in you, and it has to come out. Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. It can't be more specific. I'm really laboring this, and I'm going to make a point on it in just a minute. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out, ex ericomai, excuse me, that should be out of, enter or leave, and entered, ace ericomai, into the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, a lot of people say, well, what happened to them then? I don't know. The text doesn't tell me, so I'm not going to go there. Um, so what we have in um, Mark 5, 7 was the uh, demon shouting, don't torment us. Don't send me to torments. That's, they, they wanted to be on the earth. They didn't want, that was their eventual punishment was to go to torments. 
Now, these are the words I've been talking about. The top word is ex erkamai, which means to come out from, to get out of, to proceed out of, which means you have to be inside of something. The second word, ace erkamai, means to enter into or go into someone. That is what defines daimonizomai. And egbalo is the command Jesus gave. Jesus never said, I'm exercising you. Exorkizo, the Greek verb from which we get our word exorcism, is only describes the magic of unbelievers and the ritual kind of thing. It never is used to describe what the what the uh, uh, what the apostles did or what Jesus did. They that their what they did is always described by this word ekbalo to cast out. Now. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This has been a point of confusion for some people, and it's very clear in the Greek. Now, what's the word that describes going into? What's that word? Ace erkamai. Okay, I want you to make sure you got that. Okay. Demon influence is external influence, uh, influence of a demon or Satan from outside the body. Demon possession is when the spirit takes up residence inside the body. What happens in John 13.2? John 13.2, Jesus is uh, getting ready to celebrate the Passover, the Seder, with his disciples. After supper, and supper being ended, the devil... Now, this is Satan. The devil, having already put it, doesn't tell us what the it is, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, if you look at some other translations, like the New American Standard, there's no it there. It says, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. That, that And we'll see this. So... What we have here is this word, put, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. The word put is the word balo. Now, I just talked about ekbalo, to cast out of. So put means to cast. I mean, balo means to cast or put. If it's ekbalo, it means to cast out of. So this is putting an idea into the heart of, of Judas Iscariot. The devil isn't going into Judas Iscariot. He's putting something into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And the word heart there, and the phrase is astain cardian, which means into the heart. So he's putting thoughts there. Satan isn't going into the heart. He's putting an idea there. And then the last word to look at is the word to betray is a, a, a paradidomy, which means to deliver uh, over or to betray. And it is preceded by the word for uh, in order to, purpose. So the reason this idea is put into uh, the heart of Judas, into his mind, is the idea to betray Jesus. Now, is that demon possession or demon influence? That's demon influence or satanic influence. Satan isn't inside of Judas, at this point, okay? Then, a little later on, Jesus makes this statement that 
all of you, all of the disciples are clean except one of you. And then uh, John makes it clear, for Jesus knew who would betray him. The one that's not clean, not saved, is the one who's going to betray him. That would be Judas. And therefore, Jesus said, you are not all clean. He's talking about positional cleansing. So he's saying that, that Judas isn't positionally cleansed. The other guys are. In other words, Judas isn't saved. The other 11 are. If you don't agree with that, you eviscerate the whole meaning of the teaching on forgiveness and confession and cleansing in this passage. You, you absolutely eviscerate the doctrine. You cannot teach confession out of 1 John 1, 9 if you don't get it right in John, th- John 13. Otherwise, you're inconsistent. And then what happens in verse 27? Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, Judas. The word there is ace erkamai. Now, let me remind you of what we've done. Diamondizomai means simply to be acted upon by a demon. The only way you can understand what that word means in terms of precision is the verbs that surround it, ace erkamai to go into and ex erkamai to come out of. Now, some people have done this. They've said all this is in John thirteen twenty seven is demon influence. But if that's demon influence, using the word ace erkamai, then that means all those other examples in the Gospels have to be demon influence. And you no longer have any biblical teaching on demon possession. You no longer can have a, a, a biblical view of demonology. It undercuts everything else that we believe about demon influence and demon possession. That's why Greek matters. That's why exegesis matters. If you know the original languages, it should keep you from making sophomoric errors like this. So Satan possesses Judas Iscariot because Judas Iscariot is not clean. He is an unbeliever. Eleventh point, we have experience-based opinions on the symptoms of demon possession. You ask the question, well, how do I know if anybody's demon-possessed? Isn't it interesting that the Bible never gives us a description, never says, okay, if they have a temperature of 103, if they, if they uh, vibrate at night and have tremors, that's how you know. The Bible never gives us that. In, in, in the church-oriented epistles, from Romans to Jude, there's not only no description of demon possession, there's no warning about it, and there's no description of what you should do to get rid of the demon or to cast it out. Now, if the Bible tells us everything we need to know about the spiritual life of the church age, and it doesn't even mention the problem of demon possession, that ought to tell us that it's not a problem for the Christian in the church age, not something to be concerned about. Otherwise, God and his sufficiency would tell us. So we have a lot of people through the ages who've come up with their their various guesses as to this is how you can tell if someone's demon-possessed. There was a rabbi who died around uh, 297 A.D., and he said there are four characteristics. If a person walks around at night, what does that mean? You have 
sleepwalking at night, or you're just an insomniac. You've got what I call middle-age insomnia. You wake up at 2 in the morning, you go get a snack, you go watch a little TV. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Spending the night on a grave. Have a little Halloween party, go down to the local graveyard. I won't ask for a show of hands who might have done that when they were a teenager. Uh, Tearing one's clothes, getting mad, ripping up one's clothes, or destroying something that you've been given. Now, that could describe any adolescent at some point or another. And then we would just be painting with a broad brushstroke. So those were his four characteristics. But notice, if you look at the biblical examples, which we went through briefly, None of them were walking around at night or spending the night on a grave, although you ha- did have the one guy who's, who's the, the demoniac who's in the tombs, in, in that area of the tombs. Um, but that didn't apply to the others. Uh, tearing one's clothes, that might have applied to one or two that were having the seizures, but are destroying what is given. That's not relevant. So he's not building this from the Bible. He's building it from experience. Then we have from the 1600s a list of symptoms by a Puritan writer. If you think you're possessed, if you lead a wicked life, who defines what wicked is? Wicked in the 1600s is a far cry from being wicked today, let me tell you. They didn't know what wicked was. Third, to be persistently ill are falling into a heavy sleep and vomiting unusual objects. Now, did that ever happen in the Scripture? I don't think so. And with the little boy, the boy who gets taken over by the demon and casts himself in the fire, was he living a wicked life? He was probably three or four years of age, according to the word that's used there. Was he living a wicked life? I don't think so, not at that age. Fourth, to blaspheme. I know a lot of Christians who would come under that category or to make a pact with the devil. Now, none of those examples in the Bible have anybody making a pact with the devil. And we don't know that they blasphemed. In fact, when Jesus showed up, they didn't blaspheme him. They ran and bowed down to him because they knew who he was. To be troubled with spirits. Now, I know some alcoholics who are troubled with spirits, but I think that's another kind of spirit. Uh, to show a frightening and horrible countenance. Well, some of us do that when we wake up every morning. To be tired of living, or to be uncontrollable and violent, or to make sounds and movements like an animal. Now, most of these have no basis in Scripture. In fact, I don't think any of these have a basis in Scripture. There was a writer that was recommended uh, when I took angelology and demonology and, at seminary named Kurt Koch who, Koch, who was a 60s, 70s European writer, and he said evidence of demon possession was cursing, grinding teeth, suicide, falling into a trance. He stated that possessing demons, quote, emit a scornful laugh if he hears someone talking about the cross of Christ or the blood of Jesus. Well, that's not what we see. That doesn't happen in the Bible. And he says, and that the person will display evil and hateful expressions, especially of spiritual, if spiritual things are talked about. We don't see an example of that in the Bible. Where are they getting this? Just from personal experience. Chuck Swindoll 
well-known uh, pastor and Bible teacher, radio Bible teacher, former president of Dallas Seminary, wrote a book in the 80s called Demonism. And he asked the question, can a Christian be demonized? He answers it. For a number of years, I questioned this, but now I am convinced it can occur if a, quote, ground of entrance has been granted, the power of darkness. Now, a lot of people come up with this idea that you have some sort of ground of entrance. You get involved in doing something. You weren't looking for a demon, but you inadvertently uh, bought a Ouija board and you picked up a demon. You went to the Far East and you bought a little Buddha and picked up a demon. And you're completely unaware of the fact that now you've got a demon that's Velcroed to your back and is causing havoc in your life. So uh, this is the idea of a ground of entrance. You think that little three- or four-year-old boy... Uh, had a ground of entrance, or the uh, the Canaanite woman's daughter had been involved with the occult. I don't. There's no evidence of that anywhere in Scripture that any of these people were doing anything out of the ordinary that caused their demon possession. They weren't playing with tarot cards. They weren't um, uh, getting involved with astrology and other forms of uh, fortune telling. They weren't. Uh, none of that's there. Uh, Swindoll says, if, if a ground of entrance has been granted the power of darkness, such as trafficking in the occult or a continual unforgiving spirit, a habitual state of carnality, I don't think that that's true about many of those examples. I mean, for example, every unbeliever is in a habitual state of carnality. Isn't that right? They can't do anything else but be carnal. Not very well thought through. He says, the demon sees this as a green light, okay to proceed. He then goes on to say, based on, notice, there's no Bible verses here to support what he's saying. I'm, I'm not jumping on Chuck. I'm pointing out critical thinking skills. Is he going to the text to support his position, or is he going to experience he says, I have worked personally with troubled, anguished Christians for many years. On a few occasions, I have assisted in the painful process of delivering them of demons while present within the body, perhaps in the region of the soul. That evil force can wreak havoc within the life. So he thinks Christians can be demon-possessed. Now, here's some other examples. Uh, not a whole lot down through even uh, after the New Testament. Josephus talks about uh, this legend that comes up about about Solomon. And he says, God uh, also enabled him, that Solomon, to learn the skill which expels demons. He composed such incantations also by which distempers are alleviated. No evidence of this anywhere in the scripture. They drive away demons so that they never return. He said, I've seen a certain man of my own country, whose name was Eleazar, releasing people that were demoniacal in the presence of Vespasian. He became emperor of Rome. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils, and when the man fell down immediately, he abjured him to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he composed. Now, that doesn't fit anything that we see in the Bible. You've got incantations. You've got this, this uh, 
uh, ring that's put into the nostril that pulls out the demon, all of these things. And then he goes on to say, Eleazar would uh, set a little way off a cup or a basin full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it. You know, there's a little empirical data. The demon's going to leave, and you have a little sleight of hand and flip over the little bowl of water. <sighs> That's evidence that a demon came out. Okay? It's just it's just magic. That's all it is. Um, we get into the book of Tobit, and in the book of Tobit, we have the story of an exorcism. Uh, Tobit married a girl, and her farmer's former suitors are killed at the wedding by a demon. So this happens in the intertestamental period and is written down. And so he tells this story, and in Tobit 8, 2 to 3, it says, And as he went, he remembered the words of Raphael, that's an angel, uh, and took the ashes of the perfumes and put the heart and the liver of the fish thereupon and made a smoke therewith. That's how you're casting out the demon. You take a dead fish uh, and some perfumes and ashes and and uh, take the, the liver of the fish and put it on the person's heart, and that'll cast out the demon. He says, The witch smell, when the evil spirit has smelled, he fled into the utmost parts of Egypt, and the angel bound him. And after that, they were both shut in together. So that's that view. See, these they're so different from the Bible. Now, we have an experience-based exorcism in Acts 19.13. You have these itinerant Jewish exorcists. There's the word is exorchizo. And they took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they're going to exorcise by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, not that they have any relationship with Jesus. And we're told there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit, who's kind of a smart aleck, came out and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and beat them up so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They got their comeuppance. So... Uh, last example I have here is from a work called the Pasikta of Rav, that's rabbi for short, uh, Rav Kahana. This is dated from the 5th to 7th century, and he says, has, a, has an evil spirit never entered into you? Have you never seen a person into whom an evil spirit has entered? What should be done with one so affected? Take the roots of herbs, burn them under him, and surround him with water, whereupon the spirit will flee. Does that have anything to do with what Jesus does or or what we see in the scripture? He doesn't even use a harp. He doesn't even go back to 1 Samuel uh, to come up with something. So what we see here is in contrast to all this juju black magic, Jesus commands the demons to come out. No use of chant, spells, smells, or incantations. He doesn't touch. He speaks to them, and they depart. That's it because Jesus has power. Now, next time, before we go further, we'll finish up with the issue of can Christians be demon-possessed? And the answer is no. And we'll find out from the Bible next week. Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study your word that as people so often worry about and are fearful of spirits and demons lacking a, um, a biblical foundation, 
Uh, often in modern churches, people are, off, are frequently confused. Father, we pray that we might understand these things and be able to offer a solid answer to people so they can have hope and confidence and not be fearful, not operate on superstition and uh, uh, ideas that are really part of demon influence. Father, we have you and the Spirit in us and the Scripture that says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world so that we can have confidence that no matter where we go, we don't have to ever worry about picking up a demon or being attacked in some way physically by a demon or any of these other nonsensical ideas that are so common in popular culture, especially in more primitive societies. We pray that we may understand these things and they will give us confidence in the ability to help others if the opportunity arises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.